time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. All right, so there I was minding my own business, you know, doing my show prep. Got an email from somebody who said, you know, Chris, you got to review this sermon that Rob Bell gave, you know. And uh, so I thought, you know, I don't think it's been a while since I've talked about Rob Bell. I mean, I, I, in fact, Rob Bell and his uh, appearance at the Seeds of Compassion event, which occurred back in April, we did a pilot program for uh, Fighting for the Faith on that topic. It, this is before Pirate Christian Radio had launched, and so uh, we were still kind of working on the format and the bugs, you know, trying to get the bugs out and trying to get Rosebro used to doing radio. And uh, and so I did a program uh, reviewing the Seeds of Compassion be- event with Rob Bell. Now, what's funny is, is I actually covered it on a little11.com. I watched him live while he was at the Seeds of Compassion event, and I, uh, I took little uh, video pieces from it and put them up at uh, a little11.com on the day that the, the whole thing was occurring and was commenting pretty much in real time. And my issue really wasn't that Rob Bell was at the Seeds of Compassion event. It's that he didn't bring the gospel of Jesus Christ. So all that's a little bit of backstory. So I, I'm listening to this uh, sermon, you know, and you know, thinking, you know, I, I'll do a Rob Bell sermon review. And in the it, it toward the tail end of the sermon, Rob Bell talks about the whole thing, the whole uh, Seeds of Compassion event, and how it was covered on the internet. He refers to me, but doesn't mention me by name, and he calls me a dog. He, <laughs> I kid you not. <clears throat> not. Not related to Cruella. No, not not. <laughs> sorry, Christaville. Not related to Cruella Deville. Uh, yeah, so Rob Bell called me a dog. Now, it's in the context of a sermon that he's given uh, from Philippians chapter 3, you know, regarding beware of those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. We're going to get into that today. We're gonna, In fact, this is such a long sermon, and I want to make sure that we get to that part so we can get to it uh, so you can hear it for yourself. So we're going to actually get to that. It's a long sermon. So it's going to take a while. Got a little bit of listener email. And then uh, I'm going to ask the question, has the open persecution of Christians in the United States begun. You know, it you know, for a long time people would say, Oh, this is a Christian nation. Well actually no, it's not a Christian nation. A Christian nation would be a, a nation that's where Christ is truly the king. Um, there's a lot of Christians in America. I would I would argue that's the case. But uh, I, I'm looking at what's going on here. There's literally a terrorist act that occurred against a church in Lansing, Michigan by a bunch of liberals, liberal activists. And uh, they disrupted the church service and everything. We'll talk about that, that too, after we do a listener email. So today's going to be a good program. A little cutting-edge kind of stuff going on here. So, all right, we've got a couple of emails here. Um, one in response to uh, my comments regarding sappy music and the three-minute story video. Remember, the three-minute story video is the one whereby the Baptist press was proud to announce in their headline that 1,600 people had become Christians as a result of watching a three-minute video on the internet, which also, by the way, had this interesting little hook, had to do with, you can actually get yourself a car. I'll mention this again. Folks, go to 3minutestory.com and watch the video and register to get a new car. The, the odds of you winning are pretty good. You know, I, I just want to look out for my listeners, want to make sure that they, they have the best opportunities here, you know, to take care of their their, their needs. I mean, my wife registered to get a new car there so i mean we're in the drawing we're in the hunt man and so you don't even have to make a decision for jesus in order to be in the drawing so yeah i mean not sure which of the cars we'd get maybe that dodge uh, ram truck sounds like pretty good you know oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> 
Anyway, um, so, all right, so got an email from Scott in Oakwood, Illinois. Scott has written before. He says, Chris, funny you should mention your lack of a parting gift when you became a Christian. That's right. I, I, you know, didn't get a car, didn't even get a chance to get a drawing for a big screen television. And there's lots of churches out there trying to sell things, you know, trying to sell Christianity by offering these giveaways, you know. You know we'll give you free tickets to the Super Bowl. You know, it's all for the kingdom. I mean, it's all worth it. I mean... Yeah, become a Christian, get a toaster, and and, and get a free bank account, which we will automatically take your tithe money out of every month. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. You get stamp books and everything. So he says he's uh, so Scott says when I was baptized, my parents received a candle and the handkerchief that was used to blot the baptismal waters. But then again, I'm a Lutheran and I can change my own oil. Yeah. Okay. So now, as the director, as a music director of the congregation where I was baptized, when I plan services, there is no music that does not have some purpose. Everything in the service is an exposition or an expansion on a hymn tune, uh, and the title with uh, with page numbers printed in the bulletin. Parishioners, if so inclined, can look up the hymn in the hymnal and follow along with the words and pray the hymn silently. It does uh, it does far more good than a mindless appeal to emotional manipulation via sappy nothings emitted from our piano. I, you know, Scott, completely agree with you there. You know, this this I mean, ugh. I mean, it, it doesn't even sound like you have to actually know how to play the piano to kind of provide that background music while the uh, the pastor leads you in a therapeutic exercise. Look inside yourself and ask, what is God telling you to change in your heart? <laughs> Sorry. Since when does the Holy Spirit need mushy music to turn heads to Christ? Great question. And the answer is he doesn't. <clears throat> I don't know if anyone knows this, but the Holy Spirit has been doing his thing far longer than the keyboard's been around. Yeah, I, I know it's true. You know, in fact, get this. First churches didn't even have praise bands. No, I know it's. Can you believe that? It's true. They didn't even have praise bands. What'd they do for the first 30 minutes? I know. I have no idea what they would do for the first 30 minutes. Man, you know, what's really funny is is that um, people complain about attending a church where you have to stand up and sit down, stand up and sit down. Man, I have never been more tired in my life than when I've attended a church where the first 30 minutes you are on your feet during praise and worship time. I mean, yeah. You've got to wear some comfortable shoes or something like that because that is some very intense praising going on to the point where I'm exhausted at the end of it. <laughs> anyway, <clears throat> all right, so um, Scott continues. He says, it's like trying to fight off a gang of thugs with a Twizzler. Never tried to do that. Somehow I, the, the mental pictures make me think that the Twizzler would not be the appropriate weapon of choice. Yeah, for warding off thugs. But I agree. I mean, sappy music is like a Twizzler. And uh, purpose-driven preaching is like Twinkies. It's all junk food. He uh, he says, uh, it's the wrong tool for the job. The Holy Spirit uses the word alone to bring people to faith. Of course, it makes sense for religious charlatans to use sappy music to lead people to faith in themselves and their navels. Ooh, Scott, getting brutal there. And says, that's what you get when your emotions become your creed and your life coach's book <laughs> becomes your scripture <laughs> that's right he's picked <laughs> i don't refer to these purpose-driven pastors anymore as pastors they're they're life coaches you know self-help gurus the uh, the anthony robbins juniors of the world you know anyway 
All right, uh, it becomes a scripture. And when you listen to enough schlocky preaching, all your heart can sing is uh, can sing to is sad but hopeful music. Yeah, absolutely right, Scott. Absolutely right. Good email. Keep them coming. All right, we've got another one here. This is a question that was emailed to me or <clears throat> sent as a message on Facebook. That's right. I, I keep mentioning Facebook, and guess what? More people are saying, hey, can I be your friend? How many friends? I, you know, that's a good question. I don't know what I'm up to. You know, it's it's. I gotta beat my son though. I think my son has a. And all of his friends are like real friends, <laughs> you know. Uh, all of mine are like radio acquaintances. <laughs> but it, it, I like the radio acquaintances. I'm, I folks, it makes me feel like <laughs> somebody out there. Who, you know, hey, they know my name. That's all. That's great. <laughs> Send me an email. So Al writes me. He says, "Hey, hey, hey, Rose, bro. I'm, I'm like on like last last name terms with this guy. Yeah, he, he, I get into his friendship network, and now it's like it's not even Chris. It's Rose, bro. Dude, this is cool. Okay, he says, "Hey, Rose, bro. I have a question. I'm a student at Liberty University, and I'm leaving after the semester for a few different reasons. One being the carnality of the so-called Christian student body. Ouch. <laughs> okay." And uh, he says, you're a straight shooter. I listen to your podcast daily. So my question is, what is your view on secular schools versus Christians, i.e. liberty? Um, I'm wondering if it would be better to be around heathen who act like heathen than Christians with a spiritual chip on their shoulders. Keep up the good fight, and I'll tell people about Pirate Christian Radio. And I, and I tell people about Pirate Christian Radio daily. Uh, a reading Baptist brother, AJ, sorry, AJ. Okay, well, okay. All right, this is a great question. And uh, should I just call him Maloney? Because he calls me Rosebro. His last name is Maloney. Hey, hey, Maloney! Great question. And uh, let me let me put it to you this way: We're called to be salt and light wherever God puts us. Okay. Now, here's the deal: I, I understand that there are some some universities out there that have the moniker Christian on them, where um, you couldn't find the gospel with a you know with a boxing glove and a flashlight. You know, but you can find the law in spades, okay? Now, if you're attending a Christian university like that, you're called to be salt and light and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, one of the people I look, look to as a good example of that would be the Reverend Mike Horton. He attended Biola, okay? And what did he do? He actually started a student group on campus that really was there to study and support and learn and proclaim and promote and debate Reformation theology, Okay, and so um, I remember when I was back in as an undergrad. Okay, now I attended uh, Christ College Irvine. Now, in the middle of my tenure there, they changed the name to Concordia University because they wanted to have a freeway sign that said, you know, Concordia University is this way. And the city of Irvine didn't want a sign that said Christ College on it. And so they changed the name to Concordia University. I forever now refer to it as ConU. Okay, so I've been to ConU. And while I was at Con U, it was it was a, it was a melting pot. It was a mix. Okay, there were people who called themselves Christians who uh, were as wild as they get. There were people who were uh, legalists and Pietists. There, you know, so you there, there, there was the whole spectrum. It w- you were both, and, and right. And see, I kind of switched. Yeah, you know, I went from being one group to you know. Anyway, no, I didn't go to being a partier. Although you know, that's the that's the thing. I'm afraid of that. You know, I never got that 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 college party thing out of me so i i'm afraid <laughs> I, i'm gonna have like a breakdown at like 55 or something like that <laughs> start heading to frat parties or something you know just <laughs> no i'm kidding it's a joke 
Eh, oh man, I, I, I was a nerd. It, what's that line from Hook? You know, I, I, I missed the '60s. I was an accountant. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so here's the deal. Okay, when I was at at, at Conu, when I it was Christ College, I prefer to refer to it that. When I was at Conu, they, you know, there the, the we went out of our way to be salt and light to everybody on campus, regardless of, you know, where they were in the spiritual spectrum. Okay, and what do we want to be salt and light about? Not about the law. We wanted to be salt and light with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means that required us to preach both the law and the gospel. We actually organized a a campus group. Uh, What was the name of our group? Um, uh, It was SURE, Students United for Reformation, something like that. It was called SURE. And um, we actually published uh, a a monthly newsletter called The Diet of Worms. (laughs) And we were just obnoxious with the gospel. It was fun. It was, it was challenging. And, um, and so the answer to the question is, is that I don't really care if you're in a secular university or if you're in a religious university. That, that actually doesn't matter. Christ has called you to be salt and light uh, regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel being that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. That simple message of Christ dying for our sins, the gospel, be salt and light wherever God puts you. And yeah, here's the deal. You're always going to run into people who are sinners, okay? So there's going to be people who claim to be Christians and you claim that they're carnal. Well, okay, I understand that. Um, So what you want to do with somebody who doesn't feel the pangs of the law, you crank the law up and give them the gospel. To somebody who is at the point of despair, because they can't handle the weight of the law anymore, they're being crushed by it, you give them the gospel. You don't need to give them any more law. Give people the gospel. So to those who are sure of their salvation based on their own righteousness, crank up the law, crank it up, crank it up, crank it up. Those who don't feel the pangs of the law, crank up the law and give them the gospel. So the idea here is you're always giving law and gospel, be salt and light wherever, wherever God has put you, whether it's in a legalistic university or in a heathen pagan liberal campus you can be salt and light wherever wherever you are that's the fun thing about the gospel is it's extremely subversive so be subversive for the gospel of jesus christ wherever god puts you all right that's my answer to hey maloney yeah (laughs) maloney that's i see if he calls me rose bro i call him maloney we're we're buds now because we're friends on facebook so I have friends. <laughs> okay, now I am. This next, uh, we got a, we got a little news piece that we've got to cover, and I'm going to ask the question: Has outright persecution of Christians actually started in the United States? Well, headline: Michigan liberals attack Lansing congregation in the middle of a Sunday worship service. That's the headline. Let me read to you some details. This is by uh, by a guy named Nick uh, from a website called Right Michigan. So it's kind of a it's not quite exactly a, a full blown news organization, but uh, I'll put a link up this up to this at fightingforthefaith.com so that you can go and you can read the story for yourself. And um, literally, the story is about a church in Lansing, Michigan, that the the, the worship service 
was literally interrupted due to a liberal terrorist act. That's the way I'm going to put it. This is liberal terrorism. Okay, the people who uh, who interrupted the service put on like pink burqas. You know, they covered their face. They look like they're Muslims or something. Okay, and but the, the rather than wearing black, they're wearing pink. And um, let, let me read the story here. It says on Sunday, November 9th, two thousand and eight. Michigan liberals sat peacefully through announcements, worship, and prayer for the sick, prayer for our nation, and prayer for our president-elect before uh, uh, this, the liberals sat peacefully through it before they staged a coordinated, disgusting, and repulsive attack on worshipers and the broader concept of the church itself at Lansing's Mount Hope Church. Okay? So what happened here is that liberals... And um, I'm going to call them liberal terrorists. Is I, that's how I'm going to refer to them? And I don't think that that's overstating the fact. These are liberal terrorists. Okay, this is an act of terrorism that occurred against um, the people who you know who went to church. Okay, the leftist terrorists were part of a liberal organization known as Bash Back Lansing. That's the name of their organization, Bash back Lansing and their collection of radical blogs, including one of the state's most widely read mainstream progressive blogs called on quote queers and trannies from across the state and the region to converge on Lansing for what they refer to as quote an action. They were, they were, this was an action. Let's, let's clean this up. This wasn't an action. This was a terrorist act. Okay. Okay. While many of the members claim to be anarchists, their broader goal is stated plainly on one of their blogs. One of their blogs states, quote, I can tell you that we are targeting a well-known anti-queer, and that's not my term, that's theirs, anti-queer, anti-choice, radical right-wing establishment. Okay, so on one of their blogs, they, you know, basically these blogs called, you know, their, their organization or their network is called Bash Back Lansing. And they were calling on liberals throughout the state of Michigan to converge on, on Lansing, Michigan for an action. And they were targeting a, quote, well-known anti-queer, anti-choice, radical right-wing establishment. What was that establishment? It was a church. Okay. Mount Hope Church, for the record, is an evangelical, Bible-believing church whose members provide free 24-hour counseling, prayer lines, catastrophic care for families dealing with medical emergencies, support groups for men, women, children dealing with a wide variety of life's troubles, uh, crisis intervention, marriage ministries, regular organized volunteer work in and around the city, missions in dozens of countries across the globe, a construction ministry that has built over 100 churches, schools, orphanages, and other projects all over the world, and an in-depth prison ministry that reaches out, touches, and helps the men and women uh, men and women in the rest of societies uh, that fears the most. They also teach respect for all human life and the biblical sanctity of marriage as an institution between one man and one woman. Okay, this sounds like your typical grassroots conservative church. Okay, so here they do they do all of these these they have all of these outreach programs and they also teach the biblical view, which teaches respect for human life and that marriage is an institution between one man and one woman. Okay, fair enough. Okay, that's the biblical view. So this is what Michigan liberals, I'm sorry, I got to cross that out, it's not liberals. This is what Michigan terrorists label as radical, as a radical right-wing establishment. And over 30 of these terrorists um, showed up in force 
that's yes uh, on uh, Sunday, November 9th, uh, wearing Secret Service style e- earpieces and microphones that they re- and from which they received the quote go signal from their ringleader, and off they went. So what happened is is that these these liberal terrorists attended this church, sat in different parts of the congregation. They all had little headpieces, earpieces, and similar Secret Service-type earpieces. And when their ringleader gave the go signal, they sprung into action. Well, what did they do? Well, let's continue. So prayer had just finished when men and women stood up in pockets across the congregation on the main floor and in the balcony, and they shouted, Jesus was gay among other profanities and blasphemies as they rushed the stage some forced their way through rows of women and kids to try to hang a profane banner from the balcony while others began tossing flyers into the air two women made their way to the pulpit and at the pulpit they began kissing okay so we had a okay so um the things that they used their props also included a video camera a megaphone, noisemakers, condoms, glitter by the bucket load, confetti, pink fabric. You, you kind of get the idea here. The video camera they put to good use as they attempted to provoke a violent reaction from the church members. The image of the pink-clad folks above, you know, which uh, there's a picture here in the story. It will show you what they look like. Um, let's see. Uh, the pink-clad folks is one of theirs stating in a picture worth more than a thousand words the goals of the Michigan uh, left terrorists, okay? Okay, so the open-minded and tolerant terrorists ran down the aisles and across the pews hoping against hope to catch a, quote, right-winger on tape daring to push back. Now, here's the interesting thing. None of them did. The people in the congregation didn't push back and didn't react violently against what was happening. And just in case their cameras missed the target, they also happened to have a reporter in tow. So a journalist came along to document this uh, this liberal terrorist attack in a church. According to a source inside the church yesterday, there was a journalist from the Lansing City Pulse along for the ride, tipped off about the action and more interested in getting a story than in preventing the vandalism, the violence, and the anti-Christian hatred being spewed by these leftist terrorists. That's what they are. We'll see uh, what he uh, files and what his editor sees fit to print. I guess we'll keep an eye out on the Lansing City Pulse to see how they cover the story. Now, an an hour after, police and security had collected and removed who they thought were the last of the liberal terrorists. A volunteer security person discovered two more, though, hiding together in a public restroom while their compatriots engaged in openly violent protest in front of everyone. These two snuck away to potentially stage their own protest of sorts, and only by the grace of God did one of the hundreds of kids at the church now uh, not happen to upon that particular restroom in those moments. Precisely how long they've been there and precisely what they've been up to, we don't know. So the church's response to all of this, what was their response? Think they reacted in hate and intolerance? No, actually, they didn't. After things settled down, the Blasphemy and Terrorist Act ended. That's I'm going to continue to refer to this as a terrorist act. The lewd props were removed, and the families in the church were safe from fear of additional men and women running into and past them. The pastor took the stage and then led the congregation in another prayer. Not for retribution or divine justice or celestial comeuppance, okay? But instead that the troubled individuals who just defiled the Lord's house 
so full of anger and hate, would know Jesus' love in their lives and God's peace that exceeds human understanding. Yeah. So my question, okay, has the open persecution of Christians in the United States begun? Yeah, hey, this might be. You know, here in California, uh, there's a lot of people who protested in front of churches over the weekend, specifically because they think that Christians are intolerant, unloving, insensitive bigots and were the ones responsible for making sure that the uh, that Proposition 8, which amended the California state constitution so that it, rec- it says, basically says that the state of California does not recognize gay marriage as marriage. You know, it recognizes marriage be- as, you know, being be- between a man and a woman, okay? Which, by the way, okay, here's the deal. That's the biblical definition of marriage, okay? Now, I understand not everyone is is, is a Christian, I get that, okay? And a lot of people say, stop forcing your religion down our throats. Well, funny enough, the same Bible that teaches that marriage is an institution created by God between a man and a woman also teaches that murder is a sin, okay? So if we want to get, if you know, why are we having this smorgasbord approach to what's, what's moral and what's, what's right and what's wrong? I mean, you don't want my religion being shoved down your throat. Well, let's get rid of those statutes about murder, too, because that's God shoving his morality down our throat. We should be able to murder anyone we want for any reason, right? How about stealing? Yeah, stealing, you know. We, we, we don't have a problem with laws that prevent murder and stealing, yet that, those are morals that come down from God himself. Those are biblical views. So the problem here is, is that the culture has shifted. It's now it's been politically incorrect for a long time to talk about lifestyle morals. Okay, keep your god off of my body in my bedroom, kind of thing. Well, here's the deal, folks. <laughs> Again, what's the purpose of the law? Is the purpose of the law to make the United States righteous? No. In this particular sense, the purpose of the law, first use, keeps us from beating up on each other and stealing each other's stuff, and, and it's really for the good of, over, of, of society. But second use of the law nails us all. We're all sinners. Okay? Now, if there's Christian groups running around, like, can you say Westboro Baptist Church, that are running around bashing people over the head with God's law as if somehow they're keeping it, as if somehow they're righteous, then we got a problem, okay? But in this particular sense, we have basically people saying, no, listen, it's in society's best interest that we continue to maintain the definition of marriage as the biblical definition between a man and a woman. Now, you don't like it. That's great, okay? Who cares if you like it or not? That's what marriage is. And the voters in California and in other states, all what are we up to, like 27 states now that have made these types of amendments in their constitution, the, right, right. The the predominant view of Americans in America, even here on the left coast, is that marriage is between a man and a woman. Even Obama believes that. <laughs> does Obama believe that? Yes, he does. Oh. Heard it today. Oh, that's interesting. I have to hear that. Was that on issues today? Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Okay, so you know, here's the deal. Okay, folks. I'm just as much a sinner as as anybody. 
okay? Whether they're gay, whether they're straight, whether they're a murderer, whether they're a thief, whether they're in prison, whether they're, you know, they're, they, they haven't been caught for their... I'm just as much a sinner as anybody, okay? But when it comes to governing the, the, the state and when it comes to governing the country, you know, the, I think there's good reason to say, okay, God's law gives us a, you know, a basis by which it, it is probably a better way to govern, you know, a people, okay? We don't allow people to just take other people's stuff. We don't allow people to murder, okay? And there's good reasons why we should consider uh, marriage to be a sacred institution between a man and a woman. That's actually a very good thing for children, it's a very good thing for society. All right? We don't have to get into all of the, the details here. But here's the deal. If you don't if you disagree, then coming to my church and performing a terrorist act is not going is not how you win friends and influence people. Okay? This is the kind of stuff that will, if anything, cause more people to rally against your cause. You don't go into the house of God and carry on like a bunch of anarchist banshees guarantee you you're not winning friends if anything you're making enemies this is an act of domestic terrorism of lawlessness and it needs to be condemned as that my concern is is that this is not going to raise even any eyebrows and if anything this act might uh, embolden more people to do similar things you might you folks uh, when you attend church might want to get some bigger ushers there it is. Yeah, and make your acolytes you know, bench press like uh, 150 or something like that. Minimum, just to get them. To, I know that's not a lot, but <laughs> I think that's the most I could do ever. <laughs> anyway, we're going to go into our first break. And when we come back, um, we're going to listen to a sermon from uh, Mars Hill Bible Church from the uh, emergent rock star himself, Rob Bell. And in that, he doesn't mention me by name, but he describes what I did and calls me a dog. So I think that's going to, yeah, he, Rob Bell calls me a dog, but that's later in the sermon. So it's not, it's not going to be in the front end, but you got to stay tuned because it's, it's going to be an interesting sermon. And I, I, can, I guarantee you, this will fall into the bad sermon category. We're going to have to clean up some of his biblical mess that he makes because uh, the way he's defining terms and using them, es no bueno. Not no good is no good at all. So if you'd like to email me today regarding anything that you've heard or anything you've heard on the previous program, we uh, we love our email. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com. We'll be right back. Sissioprified religiosity won't save you. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's flying 
Circus Church. Chicago, 6 p.m. Inside Lucy Perkins' bedroom. I want to tell you my secret now. Okay. I see emergent people. In your dreams? No. When you're awake? Yeah. Emergent people like in coffee shops and cohorts? Walking around like regular people. They don't see the truth. They only see what they want to believe. They don't know they're in their sins. How often do you see them? All the time. They're everywhere. Hi, I'm Patrick Kyle, a founding partner of New Reformation Press. Just as the first Reformation rediscovered, reclaimed, and restated timeless truths from the Word of God, the mission of New Reformation Press is to reintroduce these truths to the contemporary church and culture. All of our resources are handpicked to ensure that you have the best available biblical and doctrinal materials at your fingertips to help you grasp the treasures of the Reformation and deepen your own understanding of Christ and His work on your behalf. Browse our website at newreformationpress.com. We offer books, CDs, downloadable MP3s, and our very own line of Reformation-themed clothing. Check out the audio presentation, Bible in an Hour. Absolutely the finest overview of the scriptures that the staff at New Reformation Press has ever heard. Also, Dr. Rod Rosenblatt's presentation, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church. A stunning 200-proof presentation of the gospel for those who have been hurt by the church and discouraged as a result of false teaching. Available exclusively through NewReformationPress.com. Again, that's NewReformationPress.com. All right, we're back. You are listening to Fighting for the Faith. I'm Chris Roseboro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. My job is to serve you by dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment designed to help you discern truth from error, light from darkness, to compare what's being said out there in the name of Christianity and ask the question, is this what the Bible really teaches? Well, we've got, uh, we've got a lot of road to cover today. We may be able to do it in the rest of the time that remains. If not, we'll we'll go into uh, tomorrow. We'll do we'll we'll kind of do a carryover. But we're going to be listening to a sermon preached by Rob Bell at Mars Hill Bible Church on October eighteenth, two thousand and eight, and it's called "Beware the Dogs." Okay, now now understand. The the whole purpose, the punchline of the the sermon is not to get a dig and call Roseboro a dog. That's not what's going on. He's actually trying to exegete a passage. Problem is he's doing a very, very bad job of it. It's from Philippians chapter 3 about beware those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh, right? And uh, so without any further ado, we're going to dive into this. And we're, we're oh man, we've got a lot of commenting to do because this one is just brimming. I mean, it's teeming with bad, really bad, 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 bad stuff. And uh, we'll get into it, and I'll explain why it's bad as we go along. So here we go. Without any further ado, here is the emergent rock star himself, Rob Bell, of the NUMA videos on uh, Beware the Dogs. Be- be- 
Hi, everybody. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Philippians, chapter 3. Um, try to keep up. October, chapter 3. And um, if you don't have an outline, I highly recommend an outline. There's some very, very complicated drawings on it that will help bring some order to what we're going to look at. And um, I'm just thrilled that you are here. And so let's take a moment. Um, let's take a, a few moments of silence, take a few deep breaths, and then uh, I'll say a prayer, and then um, we will read today's kind of passage from the Bible. Now stop. This, folks, what you're actually listening to is at Mars Hill Bible Church, one of the largest mega churches in the state of Michigan. He is about to lead people in kind of a light form of contemplative prayer. Listen carefully to what he's about to say. I've never heard this before in a church. Never in a church. This is a first for me. Here we go. Everyone's breathing in. Breathing. We're breathing. Doesn't make for good radio, this whole breathing thing. Yeah, this this is all part of you know. Hey, we're not we're having a moment of silence and breathing. So God, we uh, we center ourselves. What? So God, we center ourselves. Just gotta you know, we're not even we're one minute and five seconds into this this trek here on this sermon, and we haven't even gotten to the sermon part. He started off with a moment of silence, with breathing, and he's just said, Lord, we center ourselves. Folks, can you give me a single passage of Scripture that calls on Christians to, quote, center themselves? This comes out of Eastern meditation. This does not come out of Christianity, the Bible, or any biblical character that you can point to. Not Matthew, not Mark, not Luke, not John, not James, not Jude, not Peter, not Thaddeus, not Moses, not Elijah, not David, not nobody, not even Jesus himself. You think Jesus was up on the Mount of Olives going, Father, I center myself. No, not at all. What is this garbage? We're, we're going to breathe deeply here for a moment. Are they in Lama's class? Yoga. Is this yoga? yoga. Yeah, I, I, you know, my wife, my wife had to learn how to breathe when uh, we, she had Joshua. She did that natural childbirth thing. And we, we live that comedy routine that uh, Bill Cosby, you know, talked about. And I can tell you right now, Ladies, if you have not had children and you're considering getting pregnant and you want to do the natural childbirth thing, may I help you out here? Drugs are a good thing. Okay? Breathing will not take the pain away. Just one. And centering yourself, that ain't going to happen either. Okay? Believe me when I say, just got one word for you. Epidural. God's gift from from medicine. Anyway. Uh, let me let me back this up so we can review the tape here in context. Here's Rob Bell doing and, and, and encouraging Mars Hill Bible Church to engage in some kind of m- contemplative mystical practices here and centering themselves. So God, we uh, we center ourselves. We're we're going to breathe deeply here for a moment. God, as we breathe out our worries our stresses, 
our anxieties, injustice. We're breathing out injustice? Suffering. God, we want to breathe in your peace. Really, is God's peace somewhere in the, uh, out there in the atmosphere? Let me breathe in God's peace. Is that like token the ghost? <sighs> I'm breathing in the peace, man. <clears throat> no, I'm serious. This sounds all spiritual, but it's gobbledygook. Your love. God's love is in the atmosphere. We can breathe in his peace and his love. Your grace, your shalom. God, we want to breathe out all the ways in which it seems like things are falling apart. We want to breathe in hope that it can be put back together. So wherever we're at, God, we ask you to speak to us this morning what we need to hear. Uh, We need hope. We need truth. We need a compass. We need to be grounded in something. And uh, as we look at this passage, which is kind of so complex and obscure at first read, um, give us great uh, intensity and energy to, to, to go far into the heart of it and, and to think long and hard about what it means to be in this world, what it means to work for the ongoing creation of good. We, to work for the ongoing creation of good. Uh, anyone out there got a Bible verse on that one? Where in the Bible does it say that Christians are to work for the ongoing creation of good? What do these words mean? They are extremely foreign to my ears. They sound spiritual. They sound spiritual. I agree. It sounds spiritual. But it's extremely foreign because I, I don't, this doesn't sound anything like the voice of my shepherd, Jesus. Sounds like the voice of a wolf. Live with an abiding sense of trust that we're going to be okay. And in the strong, healing, resurrected name of Jesus, everybody said. You know, it's funny. Listen carefully. I'm going to ruin the sermon for you because every time he mentions the name of Jesus, he says, Jesus. In the name of Jesus. It's the way Rob Bass says, Jesus. Amen. Okay. Today's passage. Two minutes, 30 seconds into it already. I'm like on a tirade. Can you believe that? Is that a new record for me? I would say no. No, probably not. <sighs> Maybe I'm just upset because he called me a dog. <laughs> That's what it is. Actually, I'm, I'm really not. But what I'm really exercised about is this little contemplative exercise in the words that meant nothing. The concepts that are not biblical were already off the biblical reservation. But no, good news is we're going to get into uh, this passage in Philippians. And of course, in typical Rob Bell fashion, he's going to make references to the original languages. Good for you. But the problem is, is that his application here and his interpretation of the passage is way, way off. Different planet off. Okay, different religion off. We continue. And I'm sure when I read it just once through, you'll say, oh, knew that, duh. Philippians 3, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write these same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. So a couple of things I need to warn you about. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs. And in the Greek, it's D-A-W-G. It's a warning. Blepete is the word. It's a warning. Watch. Look out. 
for those dogs, number one. Number two, those evildoers. And number three, those mutilators of the flesh, part three, coming to a theater. Um, I mean, it's this very visceral kind of mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though, of course, I have reasons for such confidence. If you want to do the whole confidence thing, if you want to boast about flesh, human achievement, who your tribe you're from, I can do that. Because if others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, man, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. Now, what in the world? Apparently, first and foremost. Okay, got to stop there. Okay, he asked the question, what in the world? Okay. Let's let's tell you what the passage is about first. Okay, rather than letting Rob Bell go off on his little tirade and his little bunny trail that he's about to go off on because I've, you know, as a good host, I felt that it was important that I actually listen to the sermon ahead of time. That's a good idea. It's a good idea, you know. Um and so I've done my homework. Okay? Let's let's read this passage. Oh, open up your Bibles if you have the Bible. I read it from the ESV because all good pious people like myself read from the ESV. It's just the way it is. <clears throat> All right. So he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Now, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who put, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 7 transitions from law to gospel. But whatever gain I had, I counted as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all of his good works, by the way, is what he's referring to, count them as rubbish, as garbage in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in death. That is, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So what is this opening section of Philippians chapter 3 about? Well, let me give you some good cross-references. A great cross-reference would be Romans chapter 3, Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. Okay? All of those. It's the difference between salvation by the law and my good works or salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and his perfect righteousness that is offered to us as a free gift by faith. It's the difference between salvation by the law or salvation by the gospel. Salvation by by good works and right my self-righteousness or salvation through the righteousness of Christ. What does Paul say? 
if anyone thought they had confidence, you know, in in the flesh and they would be saved by their law keeping, it would have been Paul. Why? Because he lists off the litany of the things. He was circumcised in the eighth day. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Pharisee. He was a persecutor of the church. And as to righteousness under the law, he said he was blameless. But all of those good works under the law, he considers them to be rubbish and wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own. Okay? If you read the whole passage, you see what's going on here. This is a great passage that shows that we cannot be saved by our law-keeping in any sense of the word. It is all done by Christ. All of my good works are rubbish, and I'm not being I'm in him and have not have a righteousness of my own, but I have the righteousness of Christ. Another good cross-reference would be Ephesians chapter 2. The entire book of Galatians Great cross-references here, okay? So this is a classic passage here where Paul is laying out the case against salvation via via law-keeping and keeping the Mosaic law, and instead is putting out the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, the good news that Christ has died for all of our sins and that we are don't have a righteousness of our own, but we have Christ's righteousness. That's what this passage is about. With that in mind now, let's hear what um, Rob Bell does with this because you know he asks the question, what are we to do with this, right? Well, let's see what he does with it. There's some group of people And Paul wants these Philippian Christians to be warned about them. Right. He's warning about the Judaizers, the people who call themselves Christians who say that you cannot be saved unless you are circumcised. You have to keep the Mosaic law, you Christians. If you, you, in fact, you Gentile Christians who believe that Jesus died for your sins, uh, you need to come with us because we've got a little procedure that we would like to perform on you and don't worry it's only going to hurt for a week okay days before antibiotics oh that's just got to be all kinds of fun and i bet they didn't even realize the importance of of washing your hands you could just imagine how things could fester anyway so the, the the group of people that paul is warning him about are the judaizers these are people who claim that salvation is by christ and good works according to the Mosaic law, keeping the Mosaic law. That's what this is all about. I find it ironic that this is not the direction that Rob Bell's going to go because this is so clear in the passage. He calls them dogs. He calls them evildoers. And then he calls them mutilators of the flesh. And so you immediately think, what is the issue surrounding these people that makes him so strongly cautioning against the presence of these people. He then says, because we are the circumcision. We're the ones who worship God through the Spirit of Christ. We're the ones who boast in Christ. We don't put any confidence in the flesh. Now, uh, yeah, what does that mean, Rob? It's talking about confidence in our own self-righteousness and law-keeping. This, what in the world? Now, there were these Jewish Christians who were familiar with the scriptures, who were familiar with the anticipation of a coming Messiah who followed this Jesus in Philippi. 
There were then all sorts of Gentiles, people not from the Jewish story, hadn't grown up with Moses and David and, and all that. And these people had come to know Jesus, but from outside of the Jewish story, the Jewish faith. And there were a group of people, Jewish Christians, going around to these churches. The whole book of Galatians is Paul basically just ranting against these people, saying, no, this is so destructive. There were these Jews... No, it's not that it's destructive. It's heresy. He actually says that if even if we or an angel from heaven preached another gospel, let him be anathema, eternally condemned. That's what Paul says in the book of Galatians. It's not that it's destructive. It sends people to hell. Jewish Christians going around to these brand new Gentile Christians saying, oh, really, you become a follower of Jesus? Great. Have you been circumcised? Uh, no, it's not something my tribe does. Well, then you're going to... Okay, there's the word. That's not something my tribe does. That's where he's going to take this. He's not going to focus on the difference between law and gospel. He's not going to talk about the difference between self-righteousness, me being saved by my good works... He's going to basically make this a tribal issue. To be circumcised for, uh, we had a little thing we do on Tuesday afternoons, bite down hard on a towel, it takes about an hour. Um, and if you take part in this operation, then you'll be in with God. So there's kind of like two tiers of Christians. There are the Jewish Christians who have done all of the right rituals, among them circumcision. And then there are these Gentile Christians who don't know any about this. All they know is they heard about Jesus and they're like, I'm in. And these Jewish Christians, Paul is saying, watch out. Watch out for these people. They're dogs. They're evildoers. They're mutilators of the flesh. Now, the economy right now, 2008, is all over the place. Divorce, drugs, depression, our school systems. And we're going to talk about circumcision? Come on. There are sections in the Bible where you read it and you think, like I was reading through months ago and thinking on October, whatever the date is, this passage is about circumcision. Oh, please. Can we talk about something else? What? No, actually, Rob, the passage is about Christ. It's, all, it's about the sufficiency of Christ and his righteousness and that we're saved completely by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and not through self-righteous law-keeping. The circumcision issue is just the spark for the conversation that points us again to Christ. This isn't about circumcision. Could this ancient, archaic, petty religious discussion, maybe it's not petty, about circumcision have to do with you and me? Well, let's see. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in right. Yeah, so, yeah, sorry, but this is an important thing because it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. So, so what I want to do is I want to walk you through what this issue was. And then as we walk it through, I want you to see, is there a chance that this is actually about a whole bigger thing that might have lots to do about 2008. Now, to understand this, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 4. It has to do with 2000. It has to do with humanity throughout all of the generations. Not just 2008. Start early in the story. It's um, first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 4. The first family was dysfunctional, which should bring a strange sort of hope. No, okay, no, no. The first family fell into sin. 
They were disobedient to God. And as a result of us, all of us are sinners now. Dysfunctional family, that somehow brings us hope. It's a terrible, sad story of how Satan deceived the first human beings that God created, Adam and Eve, and deceived them into not trusting God and to disobeying God. And as a result of it, everybody who's born as a direct descendant of Adam and Eve is born a sinner by nature at war with God. And the first son kills the other first son, Genesis 4, verse 8. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out in the field. And when they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Now, verse 23, a man named Lamech, partway through the end of verse 23, I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech, 77 times. Why is this significance? In poetry form, Lamech says, man, when Cain killed his brother, that was bad. But for me, it's 11 times worse. Notice Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Okay. Why did he say that? Because the text says it, but he's going to undermine this. The text he just read says that the inclination of the thoughts, of the heart of all of man is only evil all the time. That is a perfect description of the problem of humanity since Adam and Eve. We are by nature sinful, wicked, and the inclinations of our heart are only evil all the time. Do you think things have changed at all? No. I mean, do you think that the, the, the people living in the time of Genesis were d markedly more wicked than we are? Uh, no. No. No, I don't think so at all. I think we're just as wicked as they are. You know? Let's see what he does with this. He's trying to d convey the problem. But watch what he does with the language as he tries to convey this problem. And then a couple pages to the right, Genesis 11. Genesis 11, somebody invents the brick. And the brick is a brand new technology because stones are hard to stack, but bricks you can stack fast and quickly. And people get a hold of this power. They get a hold of this technology. Genesis 11 is about technology. No, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel, is not about technology. It's about the evil inclinations of people who want to make themselves out to be like God and have God on their terms and make a name for themselves. It's not about bricks. It's about evil, wicked people. And they realize with this new technology, the brick, we can make things faster. We can mass produce things. We can build things bigger, higher, faster, cheaper, stronger. Uh, what are we going to do with this new technology? Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. What does this technology do? It fills them with this overwhelming sense of pride and arrogance. We No, no, no. The technology did not fill them with a sense of pride and arrogance. It was their pride and arrogance that made them want to use a technology in a way to exalt themselves. You know, if I was his seminary prof, he would definitely be getting an F on this so far. 
he's yeah he's been to Fuller Seminary. Does that explain a lot? Anyway, we're gonna take a break. Uh, we're nine minutes and two seconds into this very long sermon, and so far Rob Bell ain't doing so hot. Um, by the way, he calls me a dog. He, uh, we'll get to that much later in the sermon, so stay tuned. It's it's rather entertaining. So <laughs> anyway, we're coming up on our second break. Uh, if you would like to email me. And let me know how evil technology caused people to uh, do wicked things. That pesky evil technology. Email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And we will be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church, available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com, or the big-picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com. Finally, Reformation Theology Made Accessible. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo-written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Alright, we're back. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith, and uh, we're in the middle of a sermon review from Rob Bell, pastor at Mars Hill Bible Church um, in Michigan there. And um, we're in the middle of a sermon called um, Beware the Dogs, and we're nine minutes and two seconds into it. And it's not that he isn't talking about what the Bible says. The problem here is, is that he's not telling us what it actually means. And uh, we've had to stop quite a bit along the way. 
after our initial con- uh, delve into contemplative mysticism and uh, in that centering prayer where you had to breathe in breathe in hope exhale strife breathe in peace exhale injustice yeah you know i wonder if they have a breath mint for when you're exhaling injustice i wonder if never mind so let's continue with our sermon here from rob bell we can be gods we can control essentially our universe what are these stories about now We are children of the Enlightenment, past several hundred of years. The way that we were taught history is we were taught facts. Now, sometimes mean, but mostly we were taught history is about knowing the facts, what happened. Now, in the ancient world, they too saw the importance of facts, but for them, there was something far more important about history. It wasn't just the facts. It was, okay, okay, so that's what happened. But what does it mean? You know, Luther does that. You ever read the small catechism? You know, um, he, he takes like the Ten Commandments, breaks them up, and, you know, you know, the first commandment, you should fear and love God. What does this mean? What does this mean? You know, you should have, you know, you should have no other gods. He says, what does this mean? You should fear and love God. You know, it, it, so Lutherans are very familiar with the, uh, the question, what does this mean? It's not ancient. It's pretty recent for me. Read your small catechism, folks. You can tell me about September 11, 2001. You can tell me about the number of buildings, the number of planes. You can tell me about what time the planes took off. You can tell me about the hijackers. We can talk about how many people died. You can know all the facts and yet not know what it means. You can miss the significance. All right, so what does 9-11 mean? Victory if you're a Muslim, right? (laughs) But in the ancient world... A story was meant to tell you something. The point was that you would, in hearing the story, come to understand what it means. This is why when people get overly obsessed with the details of these early Genesis stories and whether or not exactly happened exactly the way the storyteller says, we're missing the point. What did it- Oh. So if you actually believe in a literal six days of creation, you know, God created the world in six days. By the way, it says that in Genesis. And you know what? Jesus actually thought that too. If you get caught up in all those details and, you know, the story of the flood and things like that, you're missing the point. It's a story designed to help teach you some meaning. Don't get caught up in all the facts. This is emergent speak regarding narrative theology. Don't get caught up. Get the bigger picture. Did it mean... Well, the first son kills the other first son, and already there's a poem several verses later where this guy says, man, it was bad then, it's 11 times worse. A couple chapters later, the whole earth is in trouble. And a couple chapters later, you have technology in the wrong kind of hands. This whole thing could fall apart. Is Genesis about the fact that there's technology in the wrong hands? Or that the inclination of the of man's heart is only evil all the time. You read the verse, Rob. How can you not be connecting these dots? It has nothing to do with the technology. Technology, by the way, folks, is it's neither good nor bad. Okay? For instance, we are sitting here in our palatial well, maybe not palatial, in our um 
very smelly dorm room like studio, Pirate Christian Radio, right? Okay, believe me, we built this thing on the cheap. Okay, and I'm using a Mackie DFX 12 mixing board with um with a microphone. I've got a I got a set of headphones on, and it's being pushed into a computer that's pushing this out to our streamer so that we can broadcast our signal on the internet. Okay. Now it just so happens that a garage band comprised of Satanists could also go out and purchase a Mackie DFX 12. Okay. And, uh, they where I'm using a, this Mackie DFX 12 to proclaim Christ and to defend the gospel and to proclaim the forgiveness of sins won for us by Jesus Christ, it's possible that a band of you know garage musicians that are all dedicated Satanists could also purchase a Mackie DFX-12 and use this equipment, could use this technology to actually cut a record praising Satan. Does that mean that the technology is evil? No. In fact... What's funny is, is that both me and the Satanists are both evil. <laughs> Get that through your head. I am not any holier than a, than a, a garage band of Satanists. In and of myself, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but a righteousness that is by faith, a righteousness that is from God. Right? So... Here's the deal. We've got two sets of evil people, myself being one set and the Satanists being another set, both using the same technology. The technology doesn't get to choose who uses it and who uses it for what. Technology is neither moral or immoral. And the problem is, is that, as Rob read from the Genesis poem, the inclination of man's hearts is only evil all the time from birth. How is he missing that? He read the verse. These stories, Genesis 3 and 4, all the way through 11, these ancient storytellers, what they want you to feel is this thing. It's about the growing human awareness that this humanity project, this thing... Humanity project? The ancient writers wanted me to get a feeling about the humanity project? Could, uh, it's in the poem. Is it in the poem anywhere? The Humanity Project. Is that like a sanitation project? Hi. Thing could fall apart at any moment. We are barely hanging on here. Next slide. Ever felt that way? Ever felt that way? Next slide. He's Ever a, felt that way? Showing slides. I. Next slide. We don't have the, the joy of being able to watch this on video. Have you ever video. had that sense you're flipping channels? Yeah. And it hits you just for a moment or maybe an extended period of time? Next slide. Oh, man. You ever had the sense this whole thing could, like, fall apart? Anybody ever have that sense? Yeah. Turn the channel. Next slide. Yeah. See, these ancient stories... The impulse that the storytellers are trying to communicate is we need to be so careful here. It's interesting that one of the stories is... The impulse is we need to be so careful here? 
No, the problem is, is that we're not careful at all. We're wantingly wicked and sinful. At war with God. Sinful, depraved, wicked, wretched. You know, sin. You've heard of it? Sin. This is about a what? About a flood. Have you ever sensed or felt like there's just a wall of water that could just take us all out? And maybe not a literal wall of water, but maybe at times you felt like, man, there is an, an, a human propensity for destruction, for violence, for treachery that could literally, it, it, it could like take over if we're not careful. Anybody ever felt that? Imp- Rob, the problem is it has taken over. It's, it, it, it's actually in charge of all of us from the moment of our conception. How is he not seeing this? Pulse. That's what these stories are about. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. Abram. We're going to get to Abraham. So when we read this poem that begins Genesis 12, that's the context. This foreboding, intuitive sense that the human project, we need to be really, really careful here. Really, that was the, the... So the whole point of verse of chapters 1 through 11 of Genesis to give, is to give us a sense of foreboding regarding the human project that at any moment we this whole thing could go bad. Didn't it already didn't it go so bad in the book you know, earlier regarding this remember the story of Noah things went so bad God destroyed the entire planet with the exception of eight human beings. That's how think, how bad things got. And no, the story of the flood is not about, do you ever feel like there's this, there, there could be a flood of, uh, this wall of water that's going to come and wash you away? That's not the point. This is actual history. Jesus Christ himself affirms the story of Noah as history. He's reading it as poem as myth as something to, that's supposed to create in you some kind of a feeling hmm got a problem with this rob there's something in the heart of humanity it's almost like when you're driving along and a rock hits your windshield and you're like oh no please please no please no oh anybody ever had that you hear, you hear the rock and then all of a sudden you see that little ding and then you tell yourself the lie of the universe it won't get any bigger. <laughs> and then the next day you drive along and what happens? Just a little bit. It starts taunting you. I'll skip a day, but tomorrow I'll be twice as big. And it starts ta- And eventually it just crack, crack, crack. That's what these storytellers are saying. There is something in the heart of humanity and it's just spreading. This whole thing could fall apart. So yeah, The thing in the, in the heart of humanity is called sin. Rebellion against God. We're dead spiritually by nature and you're describing it in terms that kind of lessen the reality of how wicked it is rob genesis 12 is in the flow of that particular understanding of the human experience now genesis 12 the lord said to abram who later has his name changed to abraham go from your country your people and your father's household to the land i will show you I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. 
Okay, got to stop here. Got to remind everybody that he's trying to explain something about Philippians chapter 3. Watch out for those dogs, those mutilators of the flesh. Rob Bell here is trying to give us some kind of a context for understanding that. Okay? And he's not explaining it as far as law and gospel. Mosaic law and self-righteousness that cannot save you or the gospel, the good news that Christ died for your sins, all of them. We're off on some bizarre bunny trail at this point. I mean, he's going through to go through great lengths to not tell you what this passage actually says. And we're so far away from it. It's ridiculous. But let's continue. So, so the poem starts with a man named Abraham. God has saving love for all of creation. So God starts with this man, Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to ground you in blessing, in grace, in peace. By the way, there are all these passages in Genesis 15, and then I think you find it in Romans, and I think you find it in James, where it says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Right. Okay, this would be a great... I just taught on this on Sunday. Okay. Yeah, I teach Sunday school at Faith Lutheran Church in uh, Capistrano Beach, California. We were talking about, we spent some extensive time in this. Wonderful thing about this passage Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay. If you read Romans, if you read Galatians, okay, Paul constantly refers back to Abraham as an example of that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And the language there, we have the benefit of it not only being in Hebrew, but of it also being in Greek. Okay? And literally, the, the term there, credited, in Abraham believed God. By the way, believed means trusts. Abraham trusted God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It's an accounting term. Okay, it means to reckon or to impute. Okay, so basically Abraham believed God and God credited to him as if that's righteousness. Whose righteousness did he credit Abram with? Well, Paul makes it really clear, even in Philippians 3, that God doesn't credit Abraham with his own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Christ through faith. That's what this is all about. And he's not expounding on these biblical themes here we're off on technology and and poems you notice how he's undermining the authority of scripture by referring to these as poems and it doesn't matter if the the details you know that, that you miss the point if you get caught up in the details they're tr- the, the the divine authors are telling you stories in order to invoke or evoke this these feelings within you no they're telling you what actually happened this is history yeah, not the divine author. I'm sorry, that's right. I, I overstated his case. The 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 storytellers in, in this poem about Abraham. Well, what's that? It's kind of technical religious language. What's it mean? It means that God wants to save all of creation from the direction it's headed. No, it means that Abraham believed God by faith and God gave credited to him as righteousness. We are saved by grace through faith, not through law-keeping. That's the whole point of that passage, Genesis 15, 6. If you're not sure on this, the parallel passage to read is Romans 4. The whole chapter, read it. Paul explains to you 
all about that. And another good parallel passage would be Galatians chapter 3. Folks, I'm giving you a homework assignment because we've got to keep going here. And so God starts with this one man. And for this man to help rescue everything, he's going to need to be thoroughly grounded in the love and grace and peace of God. If no, he needs he needs to he needs to believe and trust in God. God promises him things he doesn't see in his you know at least for a long time, and he still believes that God is good for His word. If he doesn't get it, how is he going to help others get it? So Abraham, I'm going to bless you. That's why we keep hearing about Abraham. Believe Abraham understood this. Okay, I can trust this. I can trust this. I can trust this. And Abraham believes the promises of God, and God credits it to him as righteousness. We believe the promises of God regarding our salvation, won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross, and the gospel proclamation that Christ died for our sins, and God credits that trust to us as righteousness, giving us not a righteousness of our own, from Philippians 3, the passage he's exegeting. Not giving us a righteousness of our own that comes through the law, but a righteousness that is from Christ. And then it moves from Abraham to... So Abraham, there's a whole... The whole thing could fall apart. So if it's you against the whole thing, that's not really good odds. So you're going to need a whole sort of people. You're going to need like a whole... Well, if it's a whole world... Then you're going to need a whole nation. You're going to need a whole tribe. You're going to need a whole family to help swing things the other direction. If the problem is all of humanity is in trouble, then we're going to need to have a new sort of humanity that goes the other direction. So, Yeah, that's right. We do need a new humanity. And who is that new humanity? Jesus Christ. That's the new humanity. He's the new Adam. So it's from one man to a nation, a family, a tribe. But that's not where I want to stop. This tribe, Abraham, is actually going to be for all people. Now, tribes generally are all about themselves. We're better, we're stronger, we're faster, we're quicker, we're supreme. Look at our genealogy, look at our hereditary. Most tribes, it's about us beating you other tribes. But this tribe is going to be different. This tribe is going to be for all the tribes. So it's Abraham. You're going to be the father. You're going to start essentially a family, a tribe, a nation. But they are going to be a tribe for all the other tribes. They're going to be different they're going to be for all people. we got to stop here. He's doing something wrong in the text. And I'll, let me explain to you what that problem is. Is that the, the, the language here, he's basically saying that, that this tribe is for all people. If you read the language there in the Old Testament, and Paul picks this up in the New, is that the promise is through the seed, not the seeds. The seed of Abraham, the one who is the one seed that blesses the whole world. It's not the tribe. Otherwise, it would be seeds. It's the one seed, Jesus Christ. He's doing something wrong here in the text. He's applying. It's as if the tribe itself of Israel is supposed to be a blessing to the world. No, no, it's through Abraham. The whole world will be blessed through the one seed not the tribe. Let's continue. The whole world. 
Brian McLaren has this novel called The Story We Find Ourselves In. And partway through, what, the two of the characters are discussing this poem. And one of them says, so, if this whole story is about God creating a good world, then Abraham's family is being enrolled as God's helpers, or maybe you could say collaborators. And the wind will be at their back, so to speak, in cooperating with God in the ongoing creation of good in the world. No, all of the descendants of Abraham are sinners just as much as Abraham was. It's through them, though, that Christ comes. We're following the line of the seed, the king, Jesus Christ. Man, we're way off here. Other characters like, oh, really? This poem really is, is about God starting a resistance movement to all the evil in the world, right? It's brilliant, really. This is starting to make sense to me. A resistance movement to all the evil in the world. Man, when I read in the scripture here, all of the people who were supposedly in this resistance movement to evil, they were sinners too. They seem to be participants in the evil that they were resisting. You know, David murdered and, you know, committed adultery and we just... mm me a a resistance movement to all the evil in the world this sounds like liberation theology this sounds like communism mixed with christianity this is a deadly cocktail now let's draw this for a moment shall we what you have is you have this movement it starts with abraham a movement then it moves to uh the, the the word here is nation but you could also say tribe or family. And then it moves from there to all people. So, so Abraham, it's not about you. It's not about you being blessed just so you can feel good about yourself. Okay? It's about you being blessed in such a way that you form this new kind of people. But for these people... It's not just about them being a new kind of nation, a new kind of tribe, a new kind of family. It's about them blessing all people. Now, turn with me to Genesis chapter 17. This is serious. The stories up till now have been serious. There's a flood. There's murder. There's escalating violence. Technology is out of control. The story up till this point is this whole thing could fall apart. It's an emergency. And God's rescue in the form of a new kind of people is God's emergency action to do something about this. No, God's rescue is to send his son, Jesus Christ, the one promised right after Adam and Eve fell, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. Ay, ay, ay. So... Who's serious? Who is serious about being this new kind of people in the world? Who's going to sign up for the Abraham movement? Who's going to sign up to have the wind at their back and do something differently? Or in other words, how do you get a man's attention? That question being rhetorical. How do you get a man's attention? How do you find out what men are really serious about this? Now, in an ancient patriarchal nomadic culture, it was believed that the man passed his seed in a particular act. Flashbacks to seventh grade. And that expanded the tribe through reproduction. 
You know, I got to stop there for a second. I found the passage I was referring to earlier regarding the seed. It's found in Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start at verse 15, okay? But I recommend that you go and read it in context. Read the entire book of Galatians. It's only a few chapters. You can do it quickly. And remember, it's all versus law versus gospel. Are you saved by your good works? Or are you saved by Christ alone? That's really what's going on in Galatians. The Judaizers were coming in and basically saying you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. So this is a good cross-reference book itself regarding the Judaizers. Galatians chapter 3, starting at verse 15, it says, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate the covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. So we're talking about law versus promise, law versus gospel. And the promises to Abraham were to Abraham and to his seed, singular, sperma, okay? The singular sperma, not seeds, but seed, referring to Christ. You need to know that. Because what Rob Bell is saying here about the Abraham movement is not what the Bible teaches. The rescue that God enacts is not through a movement. It's through Christ and his dying on the cross for our sins. He was bruised for our iniquities. So in the ancient Near East, can you see the importance of reproduction in this whole movement. Notice Genesis chapter 17, verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you, for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you must be circumcised. You know what that is? Turn to the person next to you. You are to undergo circumcision. It will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Things are serious. God is looking for a tribe of people who are serious about blessing the world. Who's going to do this? Who's up for this? Who wants to be a part of No. No, he's looking for a nation of people who, like Abraham, have faith in him. Abraham is the father of those who have faith. Part of this. Okay, we're gonna have to. We're gonna have some sort of ritual. We're gonna have this thing that people are men are gonna do because in that particular kind of culture in the ancient Near East, it was the male seed they believe, which is to help propagate, etc., etc., etc. So, who's serious? Who's serious? Who's serious? Now, let's be really clear here. Circumcision in this context is a tribal ritual. No, it's a sign of the covenant of Abraham, the man of. Faith, the one who believed the promises of God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Of identification. The world's falling apart. 
The world desperately needs people who will help rescue the world through the power of God and take it in a different direction. Who's serious? Who's serious? Who is serious about being this kind of people? And who will take responsibility? You know, Rob, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to challenge you again on this because the covenant, by the way, the covenant of circumcision, did they, was this based upon people waiting until they were adults to make a commitment to join the Abraham movement? No. Not at all. It was eight-year-old, eight-day-old, eight-day-old males who were circumcised. If you were born a descendant of Abraham after this, eight days after you were born, you were clipped. Um, how, how many eight-day-old boys are capable of making a decision to go, I want to be a part of, of, of changing the world for the good and joining this resistant movement of the Abraham movement. Did they, did the, does an eight-year-old boy have any say whatsoever? By the way, if you don't believe me, look at the account of Jesus' circumcision. When was he circumcised? When he, just before he came on the scene for his, his ministry? No. When was Paul circumcised? He says so in the passage that he's supposedly exegeting. Eight days after he was born, he was circumcised of the tribe of Benjamin. Listen to what Rob Bell just said about this tribal thing. It doesn't even smack of the truth because he's got his facts way off. Bible ritual of identification. The world's falling apart. The world desperately needs people who will help rescue the world through the power of God and take it in a different direction. Who's serious? Who's serious? Who is serious about being this kind of people? And who will take responsibility for passing this on to the next generation and for sharing this new kind of story and helping increase this family and nation so that they can be a counter to the direction the world is headed? Can you see with wandering nomadic shepherds in the ancient Near East why circumcision as a particular form of tribal identity would have been a significant thing. It was a sign of the covenant of faith. It was not a sign of you showing how serious you were in a tribal kind of way. You with me? No. Okay. So that's where this comes in. Now, in order to show what Paul then is getting at at Philippians, I need to ask a question. Are there any U of M fans here? Okay, and I don't, I don't need like... Okay, he's going to at this point give an example where he calls people out of the audience who root for one particular college team over another and discusses their particular tribal rituals. So he likens, you know, John, you're a Dodger fan. Okay, so any any tribal rituals that go with the Dodger tribe, hating the right? Hating the Giants. I think that's an important thing. Um, is is what he's bringing up here, and I'm actually, for the sake of time, going to skip over this because it's an audience participation thing going on. So, I, I let me give me a second here while I find where he picks up 
because he he goes on with this for a while. Hold on. Okay. Any, anything else? Color. Do, do you all have any sort of um, anti U of M cheers? Do you get anything like? Yeah, we say basketball season is just around the corner. No. Okay. Dog, you're sitting a couple rows ahead of these people who, for some odd twist of fate, got tickets near each other. Okay. <laughs> you <laughs> transcend and include. If they rush to help him, it does not mean that they are no longer a Spartan or no longer a Wolverine. Right, let me back this up. Hot dog. Your first question is... Are you a Spartan? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> okay. Okay. Now, you hear him yell... My friend is choking on a hot dog! <laughs> okay, he's setting up a what? scenario where there's, there's somebody who's choking on a hot dog. Okay, at, at, at a game. So they're apparently they're choking on a hot dog. Their life is in danger. And so they're at this college game... And somebody is choking on a hot dog. Wait, 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 stop. You, wait, wait. You immediately have a question. Before any of you do anything, you have a question. You have a burning question, right? Is he a U of M fan? He yells to you all, my friend's choking on a hot dog. Your first question is... Are you a Spartan fan? Right, are you a Spartan fan? Exactly. No. You don't ask, do you? What do you go green? Yes, that's not the moment when you keep yelling "go green." He yells. <laughs> point made. You're, he yells, "My friend is choking on a hot dog." He is unable to dislodge the hot dog. He yells to all of you, "My friend is choking on the hot dog." At that moment, what do all of you do? How can I'm a nurse? How can we help? If at that very moment you say. Is, is he a U of M fan? No. Oh, nothing I can really do. You say, well, he's a Spartan? No, nothing I can really do. So you carry your tribal identity close to your heart. Your tribal identity is important. But the moment at which somebody outside of your tribe is in trouble, if you continue to hold on to your tribal identity at the expense of the guy who's choking on the hot dog, then at that moment, your tribal identity is actually inhibiting the ongoing creation of good in the world. The ongoing creation of good in the world. What does that sentence or phrase mean? The ongoing creation of good in the world. Are we talking about the same Bible that I read? You know what I think it is? Maybe that Rob Bell's not part of my tribe. <clears throat> Are we all tracking? No. Now, key line, transcend and include... If they rush to help him, it does not mean that they are no longer a Spartan or no longer a Wolverine. So they transcend their tribal identity without leaving it behind. Does that make sense? They don't at this moment cease to be a Spartan so they can help a non-Spartan. They're a Spartan who helps others. They're a Wolverine who is still a Wolverine, and yet they hold that identity and transcend it to help somebody beyond. If they don't, then, at that moment, their tribal identity is actually working against humanity. Let's give a round of applause for our volunteers. Thank you very much. Well done. Awesome. Isn't that fun? Audience participation in a sermon. Awesome. Now. Oh, my word. That is... Un oh, thank you. Very kind of you. Yes. Great. Would you like that shirt? Yes. Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> now, 
there, there is a, a school of thought called an integral approach to humanity. It's essentially taking psychology, sociology. Um, by the way, all of this, by the way, is supposedly trying to tell us and help us understand the circumcision thing and the dogs and those mutilators of the flesh from Philippians chapter 3. And now we're moving into some kind of a theory about learning. Um, a bit of economics, world religions, etc. And they are working to say, are there ways to synthesize human development? Now, if you take the work of some of these folks, the Don Beck, Claire Graves, Ken Wilber, and you look at child development, you begin to see certain patterns that connect. Now, you can take this biblical pattern and you can actually see a larger trend. When a child is born, they have what's called an ego or a self-centric level of awareness. That's because they're sinful by nature. They're related to Adam and Eve who fell into sin, and as a result of it, all of their descendants are conceived as sinners. The whole world revolves around them. All of their thoughts are only evil all the time. That's what you read from the Genesis <clears throat> poem, Rob. Now, this is important and absolutely crucial to human development. As a parent, you love this child, you nurture this child, you want to create this solid base and foundation of love, care, compassion, discipline, morality. You want to so ground this child in love and grace and belonging that, that, that they rest on a sure, firm foundation. This child... Who's our sure and firm foundation? Jesus. Just want to throw that in there. You, know. you want them to have, essentially, a healthy, formed ego. But if... What? I want my kids to have a healthy, formed ego? Huh? Where is this in the Bible exactly again? If your child stays egocentric, something really destructive would happen. So you do things like this. Make your bed. We make our beds in this home. Now, what is that? What is make? Or the chore list where, where you articulate. There's a That's just free child labor. It's in my house. I might as well take advantage of it. List of things that we all chip in to do here to, to make this household run. Now, what is that? You are helping that child move from an egocentric view of the world to an ethnocentric view of the world. You're part of a tribe our family, our tribe. And we have certain ways we do things. And so as a parent, you're constantly gauging, how do I help my child? If your child stays an egocentric, which, by the way, says this, nobody tells me what to do. Egocentric language. Now, that's why a two- or three-year-old, the most articulate word that they use more than any other word is... Exactly. Classic egocentric development. Now, no, as a parent... Word. You start to engage in this dance like cute little two- or three-year-old, but now what you're doing ever so gradually is you're helping bring them in to how the tribe functions. Now, you can also rush this. Like if you say things like to a four-year-old, you missed a spot where you were mowing the lawn. Why is he spending so much time on this tribe business? You want to know why? Because he doesn't want to interpret it through the lens of the law and the gospel. He's going to instead interpret Philippians chapter 3 through the lens of tribe. That's what he's up to. That's what's going on here. 
rushing things a bit. Are we all tracking? So it's this, it's this, this dance of bringing the child into an ethnos. There's a way that we do things. Now, if somebody stays at ethnocentric and doesn't move to world-centric... Okay, so we start off egocentric, we move to ethnocentric that deals with tribe and family, and then greater maturity is global-centric, world-centric. How about Christocentric? Isn't that what Christians are? Is Christocentric? Centered on Christ? I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me has bears much fruit. Or, as Paul said, I chose to know nothing among you except for Christ and him crucified. That's what's missing here. This isn't Christocentric. He's moving to world-centric. We could have trouble. What happens when the tribe starts to veer off course? So you've ta- so this child moves from egocentric to tribal-centric, but you also, as the days progress, you want to instill in this child the ability to sort through and the courage and guts when the tribe veers off course to say, nah. Um, others call this pre-conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom, and then post-conventional wisdom. What does the Bible call it, Rob? What happens in Germany in 1938 when everybody's part of the Nazi party? At that point, you don't want to be ethnocentric. You want people to have be able to question the rules and rituals of the tribe. You're hoping more and more people would move to world-centric because sometimes what appears to be the ethnocentric party line is actually bad for the other tribes. Are you with me? So there is this progression. There is this movement. Sometimes what happens as people become so enwrapped within their tribal identity that when it is revealed to them that their tribe's practices, be it of consumption, destruction, etc. Oh, yeah, that, the American tribe. We have a terrible problem of consumption and production. Evil technology aren't good for the rest of the world, they will continue to stand by their tribal identity at the cost of moving to a place of world-centric. This is definitely Hegelian stuff we're getting here. This is Hegel. This is Marxism. Understanding. Egocentric. Tribal-centric. World-centric. Now, let me just riff for a moment on a couple possible ways to understand this. Let's say you're flipping channels, and for some reason you get stuck on the Christian cable. And your wife says, no, keep changing, I'm losing my faith. But for some reason, like a train wreck, you just can't. You're just frozen like, oh, dear God, I can't watch, but I can't look away. And as you're listening to the message, and you're trying to sort through what the message is, it's mentioning Jesus and God and Bible and all this kind of... But what you find yourself thinking is, this message really is saying, just have faith or something, and then you'll, that God has a Ferrari and he wants you to drive it. Um, that, that this is actually about me becoming really rich and wealthy and all of my kind of most basic desert 
urges and desires for lots and lots of stuff will actually come true if I trust that this Jesus and I have the faith that's bigger than a whatever kind of seed. How many know what I'm talking about? And you're watching it going, it says Jesus, God, Bible, church, salvation, etc., but it, it sounds like it's all about me. Rob, in the same way, using your metaphor here, you're using words like Jesus, God, grace, salvation, and it doesn't mean what the scripture passage that you're exegeting actually means. You're making it a global thing where Jesus is about, Jesus came and died. He was crucified for the forgiveness of sins to propitiate God's wrath against sins. You're applying this in a very, very bizarre way. You're using similar language, but what you mean is not what the scriptures teach. You know what that is? That's the gospel coming from an egocentric worldview. Yours is a gospel coming from a global-centric worldview. The problem is, is that the gospel comes from a Christocentric worldview, not a global worldview. It's saying it's all about you. When you hear, ex- and in the same way, you're saying it's all about the world. It sounds nice. It sounds biblical, but it's not. It's all about Christ. That's the problem, Rob. Excessive prosperity. This is what's. It's actually an egocentric level of awareness and consciousness, but it's hiding out in gospel language. Yours is a global centric thing hiding out in gospel language. It's about Christ. It's Christocentric, Rob. Are you with me? Now, second example. Let's say, or I have met many people who grew up in West Michigan and who grew up in a particular setting where church, family, school, and work were all kind of overlapped and connected. And what happened, it, it kind of created its own sort of tribal world. And it's got its own codes, its own customs, its own ways of behaving. And this person, somewhere along the way, encountered a resurrected Christ that was bigger than their tribal matrix. And they responded... A what? A Jesus who's bigger than their tribal matrix... He's really going a long way down this tribal path here to avoid. I mean, this, I, y'all ever play that game Twister? You know, you you put your hand on the the green square and your foot over on the on the purple circle, and you know, and, and by the end of it, you're all you're all in a pretzel. He's do he's playing Twister here. By the end of it, you collapse. Yeah. <laughs> to this resurrected Christ, I'm in. I'm following. Let's go. And at the moment at which they are most alive, reborn, experiencing things in all new ways, alive, faith for them has gone from being this kind of stale thing on the shelf to, oh, this is brilliant, this is beautiful. At the moment at which they are most alive, they are receiving the most criticism and judgment from their tribe. Could it be that they've wandered off into false doctrine? If they're receiving criticism from the Christian tribe, 
Could it be that they're embracing a false Jesus? Yeah, completely within the realm of possibility here, Rob. Apparently, you don't think the prosperity preachers are preaching a false, a, a true gospel. Hmm. This person broke tribal codes. And they're saying, wait, 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 the gospel is more real to me than ever at the very moment at which their tribe is saying, you have gone off the deep end. Uh, Rob, what's the gospel? Can you define it for us? Paul does in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He actually tells us what the gospel is. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. And then he was buried and raised again on the third day in accordance with the scripture. That's good news. Christ died for our sins. Substitutionary atonement. That's the gospel. How are you defining gospel here, Rob? Sometimes when people say the gospel, what they're really talking about is tribal identity masquerading as the gospel. Are you with me? So at this point, he's basically claiming that in Philippians chapter 3, this whole you've got to be circumcised thing, it's just tribal thinking run amok, masquerading as the gospel. No, it's the law masquerading as the gospel, Rob, and that's Paul's point. That's why he goes out of his way to talk about not having any confidence in the flesh and his own righteousness, not having a righteousness of his own that comes through the law. That's why Paul says that there in Philippians. Now, now, how many of you know somebody who's 18, and when they were 18, they left home and went away to university? They grew up in the church. They know all the right things. They know all the right Bible verses. Blah, blah, blah. They go to university, and they encounter a world that is much bigger than the world they came from. And they're encountering truth, compassion, justice, integrity, and it's got all sorts of faces and names that it's coming to them through. Let's see, at the university, that would be Karl Marx, um, Lenin, Stalin, uh, Savara, um you get the point. And there, this is good, this is true, this is beautiful, but it's way outside of the tribal boundaries they were taught. Tribal boundaries. Well, Rob, for Christians, if we're talking tribe, our boundaries are sound doctrine. Period. And a Christocentric Bible and faith. And the Jesus that they are meeting is way, way, way bigger than the resurrected Christ they grew up with. Hmm, maybe the Jesus they're meeting isn't the real one. It could be a false Christ. I mean, why isn't this within the realm of possibility here? Hmm. And the family becomes deeply concerned that they have drifted way off. Help, my daughter has become emergent. She no longer believes that Jesus died for her sins and has joined on to the let's change the world bandwagon. Yeah, I'm a little concerned. I cannot tell you how many university students I have talked to who simply say, oh, no, no, no. 
I, I got no problem with the resurrected Jesus. I just have a problem with what they're really saying is a tribal-centric religion that isn't as big as Jesus. Jesus will always be bigger than your tribe. Jesus said narrow is the way that leads to life and broad is the road that leads to destruction. Was Jesus being tribal or was he telling us the truth? And by the way, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. You're taking the narrow road and widening it. Wide roads lead to destruction, Rob. This isn't about being tribal. The truth is very narrow. Are you with me? And no. so what happens is you have to make sure that what you are saying is church, God, Jesus, Bible, gospel, faith is not actually the same old tribal politics and theology disguising itself as the gospel. Because can- Well, we can just get rid of tribal theologies then. Get, let's get rid of them. Is you know because that puts that's that's the narrow Jesus and we need a broad Jesus that's bigger. The gospel is bigger. The gospel is bigger and Jesus is bigger than your tribe. Ooh man, dangerous, dangerous stuff. Did God really say that was the question that the serpent asked Eve in the garden? I hear that question ringing in my ears here. Can use all the right words, but it's actually about us and us. Alone. It's about Christ and Christ alone. So, so, so this way of understanding things, this original movement is Abraham to a nation, a tribe, a family, to all people. Ethnos, ego, self-centric, to ethnocentric. But, but Jesus invites us to be world-centric. So no, Jesus invites us to be Christocentric. Go out into all the world, that's the where we go, and make disciples, teaching them everything that I have taught you. The world is where we go. What we do is we point the world to Christ. You see the problem here? This is like the prosperity gospel on the reverse side of the pendulum, on the reverse side of the arrow, where the prosperity gospel is, using his term, egocentric, the opposite error is a theology that's global-centric or world-centric. Neither one of them is the truth. The world is the place we go to share and proclaim the good news and point the world to Christ. So you see what's happening in Philippians. It- By the way, I'm going to go a few more minutes longer. Here, We're going to go beyond the two-hour mark. <laughs> Listen, this is not some kind of a thing on my point where I'm trying to get to three hours like Limbaugh. I just want to get these last couple of uh, minutes in because I want to point out some other stuff that he's saying. And so I don't have to do this again tomorrow. So that way I can circle back and kind of clean some things up to, on tomorrow's program without having to play a, a long clip. Is all people are experiencing the saving love of God expressed in Christ. That's what's happening in Philippi. All people are experiencing the saving love of God in Christ. Hmm. And there is this group of Jewish Christians who are going around to these all people who are experiencing God's saving love for the whole world expressed in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And they're saying, wait, 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 wait. If you're really going to be legitimate, you have to do our tribe's rituals. And Paul is wrong. 
Wrong. <laughs> Rob, fail. That's a, This is an epic fail. This is wrong. It is not that you have to follow our tribe's rituals. The point of, again, read Romans 3 through 12. Read Galatians, the entire book. Read Philippians 3 in context. It's a difference between keeping the law and keeping the gospel. Why is this Hebrew tribe so stuck on circumcision? Because they believe that they're saving themselves through their law keeping. It's not about tribe. It's about law versus gospel. It's about grace versus works. It's about self-righteousness versus the righteousness of Christ. That's what the passage bears out, Rob. And you have gone through great lengths and pulled in all kinds of confusing, wonderful outside sources regarding the egocentric, the ethnocentric, and the globalcentric to avoid this fact. Sorry about that music. Um, our radio station software wants to go into the next break, and I'm going to take us through a little farther than that. And I apologize but uh, that we're going into the third hour. I know that this uh, this is not going to be something that I'm going to do on a normal basis. This is like a bonus extra hour that you guys are getting, and this is not some kind of a hint that Roseboro is going to go as long as Limbaugh. But I want to make sure that we get this covered right because what Rob is saying is so far off that it needs to be challenged biblically. It needs to be taken to task, and we need to analyze what's going on here. So that being the case, I'm going to back up the tape just a little bit so that we can continue to get this context, because he's gone a long way now uh, talking about this tribal stuff, and he's finally circling back to the book of Philippians and trying to pull all this tribal stuff from the Old Testament into the New Testament, and it's not going to work. Let's continue. What's happening in Philippians is all people are experiencing the saving love of God expressed in Christ. That's what's happening in Philippi. And there is this group of Jewish Christians who are going around to these all people who are experiencing God's saving love for the whole world expressed in the resurrected Jesus Christ. And they're saying, wait, 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 wait. If you're really going to be legitimate, you have to do our tribe's rituals. And Paul is saying, beware of anybody that wants to take the gospel the wrong direction. Actually, he's saying anybody who wants to add the law to the gospel. That's what he's really talking about here, Rob. And what you're saying is wrong. Beware them dogs. Now, next slide. The three words he uses when he describes these people, and he is cranked up about this. First word he uses, he uses the word kinase. Now, to a very good religious Jew, the word they used for everybody who wasn't them, who they said were unclean, is they called them dogs. So Paul, in this brilliant judo move, says, you see yourself as clean, and you see all these other people as dogs, but in your efforts to convert everybody to your tribal ideology. No, 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 no. The reason why they saw themselves as clean is because they were focusing on their good works as if their law-keeping made them righteous before God, and because everyone else was sinners that they weren't righteous. They were not seeing the gospel, Rob. That's what you're not seeing also. You think they're the dogs and you're clean, but you're now actually the unclean ones. <laughs> Boom! Next one. Kakoe ergatai. Kakoe is where we get the word kaka. It means bad, evil. 
Ergatoi works. I know, I love saying that. Kaka? Kaka. Is this like junior high? Kaka? Come on. It's bad. Evil. Evil workers or doers. He says, in your efforts to get people to conform to your tribal-centric small worldview. No, that's not what the text says, Rob. You are yanking this in from your long diatribe about tribalism. But this is not about tribalism. This is about whether you're saved by keeping the law or whether you're saved by trusting in Christ alone. Law versus gospel. This is not about tribe. You keep throwing that in there, but I'm not going to let you get away with it. That does not work in this text. You think you're doing good works, but it is actually destructive. The next word, katatome, is unbelievable. Katatome, the word for circumcision is peritome, which means to cut around. Circumcision, to cut around. Somebody will explain that later. To cut around. Yeah, katatome is like a lawnmower. It's like mangled everything. He calls them katatome, which means to cut to pieces. You come into this church full of all these people from all these tribes, and you start saying, unless you do our tribal rituals, then you are... No, no, no. This isn't about tribal rituals. Rob, you are actually sticking something into the text that doesn't belong there. And the sensus naturalis of the text itself is law versus gospel. And you're turning it into tribe versus gospel. And that is absolutely doing violence to this passage. Who aren't really legitimate in God's eyes. He says they come in wanting to cut around all the uncircumcised men, but they're actually cutting everybody to pieces. Let's keep this up for a second. What's he mean? Uh, Earlier this year, I got to do this event in Seattle with the Dalai Lama. And uh, they had this, before the main event, where we did like this kind of panel discussion thing, there was this uh, breakfast first thing in kind of this hotel kind of conference room. This kind of sets up the ground where you're going to hear him call me a dog. He doesn't mention me by name. He mentions me by my works. So and you'll see. Here it goes. And it was just, the event itself was unbelievable. At one point, um, in one of the questions, I got to talk about forgiveness and how it's really hard to forgive people. And when you choose to forgive people who have wronged you, it's going to be really painful because you're going to have to absorb all that pain but it's going to transform you. So talking about how when you forgive somebody, it may, it, it may feel like a Friday, but Sunday's going to come. It, it may feel like a death, but there's going to be a resurrection. And the Dalai Lama clapped. <laughs> that's, Rob, that's really not a good thing. The Dalai Lama follows a false religion. And if he's clapping for your religious pontifications, that's probably a good sign that you've fallen short of the mark there and you haven't done the job of actually proclaiming the exclusive claims of Christ. The scripture is clear. There are no other gods except for the one true God, Yahweh. And that Jesus Christ is the one true God in human flesh, God the Son. And that he claims that no one comes to the Father except for through him and that he's the way, the truth, and the life. And that, and, and, and that there is no other God except for him. 
And if you have the Dalai Lama praising what you're saying, then the Dalai Lama doesn't really hear the exclusive claims of Christianity and the exclusive claims of Christ. He's hearing the same gobbledygook that everyone else was saying, that we're all following the same religion. That's what the Dalai Lama said at the Seeds of Compassion event. And Rob Bell, you didn't say anything to contradict that false religious notion. And I was like... Your Holiness, give it up. Now, uh, there's this, the first thing before the main event was this, this breakfast with a smaller number of people. And I cannot tell you the, the, the sense of the place. Um, Roshi Joan Halifax, kind of the leading Buddhist nun in America, and, and Ingrid Watson, this um, unbelievable... Uh, Muslim scholars, kind of the leading female Muslim scholar in America, and you have just you just have every nation and every tribe in one room, and I was astounded with how many people said to me, "Oh, you're a Christian pastor. We're so glad you're here." One woman just said, "About time you people showed up." I mean, it's just, and I'm having this sense sitting there. And the Dalai Lama's 10 feet away, and Bishop Tutu is next to him. And, and I'm, so I'm having this sense, like, there is nowhere in the world I would rather be than right here, meeting person after person who says, I'm so glad you're here. Somebody leans over to me and says, hey, uh, there's protesters outside. I'm like, who would protest this? Wh- wh- who is it? And they're like, Christians. And then a friend of mine says to me later, oh man, in blogosphere, you are getting killed. For- now, just so, just so you know, by way of a little bit of history, I was the first person reporting on this. Okay, I was watching the Seeds of Compassion event live. And while I was watching it live, I was taking video slices of what Rob Bell was saying and actually putting them up on the internet and giving biblical critique. Okay, now I want to make something clear. Okay, I'm the one who led the charge. There was nobody else who was leading the charge, and all the other discernment ministries on the Internet were actually pointing to me and what I was doing. So I was the one leading the charge. I didn't have a problem with Rob being there per se. The problem was is that he didn't bring the exclusive claims of Christ. He didn't bring Christ and him crucified. And what he said, basically in the way he handled it, made it sound like he was going completely along with with the one world uh, we're all we're all children of God and following the same God methodology and ideas that were being taught by the Dalai Lama and other people on the panel there Rob's voice was not an exclusively Christian voice where he was preaching Christ and him crucified and proclaiming the re, the that Christ as salvation alone no what he basically his what he was saying made it sound like he agreed with all these other people that there's just all these many different paths to God. So I'll give Rob credit for the fact that he was there. Where he flunks is the fact that he didn't get there. When he got there, he didn't proclaim Christ. He didn't proclaim the exclusive claims of Christianity against the false religions of the world. For being there. He says they're actually showing clips of you on stage with Dalai Lama and, and, and the interaction. They're actually showing... And then just crucifying you for being there no we were not i was not crucifying you for being there rob i was critiquing you because you were not preaching christ you were not preaching the christian gospel 
Instead, this was a big one world religion happy fest. We're all going to the same place because we all worship the same God in our own different ways. And your voice just became one voice among many with that type of message. That's the problem. It's not that you were there that was the problem. Because the scripture says, Christ says, go into all the world. Yes, we must go into all the world. And we tell them and teach them what Christ said. There is no other name in heaven by which men are saved except for through Christ. What you did made it sound like there's many paths to heaven because you you weren't saying anything that stood out from that message that was being taught by the other people on the panel that day, Rob. Beware them dogs, because they will tell you that God has saving love for the whole world, but they won't even have breakfast with the nations. In the blogosphere, you are getting killed. You've got to hear this there. in context. He says they're actually showing clips of you on stage with Don Lama and, and, and the interaction. They're actually showing, and then just crucifying you for being there. Be where them dogs so he just called me a dog there it is <laughs> rob the passage is about beware of those dogs those mutilators of the flesh why because they believe they're saved by their law keeping it's not tribal it's law versus gospel anyway we'll pick up more of this tomorrow Thanks for hanging in there, and uh, if you would like to email me regarding what you've heard today on Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. I'm a dog. Beware them dogs. We'll talk about this tomorrow. Until next time, God bless.